So we're here to learn more of God. Um, you can't you can't grow in knowledge of someone without either um, growing in appreciation or diminishing appreciation for that person. The more you know someone, the more you're either going to like them more and more, or you're going to start liking them less and less. Um, and it's true with God. The more we know him, and the more we know of him, our, our only choices are to like him more, have more affection for him, or to like him less, have less affection for him. We can't stay still. We can't stay stagnant. As you learn more and more of God, you have no choice but to also have your affection move. One side... Uh, what's the word I want? Danger um, of revival meetings that I thought about today was the people in the congregation will learn more and more about the speaker um, as the week goes on. Because as because we preachers we don't we don't speak out of a vacuum. We speak out of our experience and our walk with God, and that very much shapes. Um, the path we've been on is the one we can tell you about. And so this evening, we're going to, to talk about a subject that is um, can be fairly raw for me. I'll just put it that way. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Our main verses this evening come from Matthew 6. The, the verses here are familiar to us. These are uh, taken right from the middle of uh, what, what we might call the Christian Constitution um, and the, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to focus this evening on verses 19 through 34 of Matthew chapter 6. We'll start reading now, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, dark, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? 
So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, Where shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need, that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I read through this passage a couple years ago, and in verse 25, the therefore tripped me up. Therefore is saying, because of what I just said. And in verse 25, it didn't, it didn't really make much sense to me for Jesus to say, because of what I just said, don't worry about your life and daily necessities. Well, what he just said was where your treasure is, is where your heart is. He talks about focus and the light of your eye. He says, you can't serve God in possessions. Therefore, I say, don't worry about your life. Now, verse 34 he does it again. He says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. And this instruction not to worry because of what I just said always was more logical to me. It made more sense. He just got done saying, God takes care of his own. Therefore, don't worry. All of this passage, though, comes together to counter our natural human tendency toward anxiety and to worry. I mentioned this book, I think it was on Monday evening, The Christian Atheist, Believing in God but Living as if He Doesn't Exist. Um, the eighth chapter of this book is titled, When You Believe in God But Still Worry All the Time. And the author's point is that you are functionally a Christian atheist if you believe in God but you still worry all the time. Philosophically, you're a Christian. Practically, you're an atheist. You're living as if God doesn't exist. This evening, we will evaluate whether we are just theological and philosophical Christians. We believe in God. But are we functionally atheists when it comes to worry? Do we worry like the atheist does? Romans 14.23 says that anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. And you can't get much more not from faith than worrying. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. We want to grab just a couple verses here. We'll break in. We'll break into verse 5. 1 Peter 5, breaking into verse 5. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, of course, care in verse 7 um, isn't the same way we always use care. We can care about things. Um, the, 
The word being used there is anxiety. Cast your anxiety on God because he cares for you. And casting your anxiety on God, Brother Claire touched on humility in the devotional this evening. Casting your anxiety on God is part of humbling yourself. Part of the path to true humility involves casting your care, casting your anxiety on God. See, we think, I know God's a good God and all that, but I've got this situation handled. And then if we have that mindset of more in the abstract, God is a good God, but I can deal with this, so I don't really need to lay this burden on him, and I can just carry this myself. When it turns out we don't have it handled, then in turn it just falls on us and not on God to handle it until we get to the end ourselves and, and hand it over to God. If, our, if your default setting is, if it's small enough for me to handle by myself, I will, your default setting will also be when things go wrong, well, I'll just keep on trying to handle it instead of from the very beginning, casting it on God. Two, two notes just to, to throw in here. Um, if you're struggling with humility, do take a look at your worry. And if you're struggling with worry, take a look at your pride. There's a connection there that we often miss. But part of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is simply casting all of our care, all of our anxieties, all of our weights, all of our burdens on Him. And if we have the pride to think that we can do it ourselves, we're going to have some, some anxiety in our lives. This casting word is interesting. Um, Luke 19.35 is the only other New Testament place to use this word that's translated casting um, your, your cares and anxieties on God. There are lots of other casting um, cases in the New Testament, but the, the same Greek word that's used here by Peter is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Luke 19.35 when um, they were bringing the colt to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and set Jesus on him. Um, and they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt and Jesus and set Jesus thereon. That's the only other use of this same casting word. This is not um, like the casting of nets when you had the fishermen that were following Jesus and you have different uh, accounts of them casting their nets in the water. That's a different word. Because in that case, that's just throwing. It's just throwing it off the boat. It lands where it lands. Um, this casting is a, a throwing on. It's a targeted, uh, it's, it's an intentional targeted placing. You know, there's still some throwing there, I guess. But, but it is, it's intentional. It's targeted. It's not just wherever it lands. You're not casting off your cares. You're casting them on God in the same way that they cast their coats onto that colt. The true God, the God of the Bible, commands us to let him work for us. You realize that in these verses? He commands us to let him work for us. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. In Psalm 55, David said, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. In Isaiah 46, verse 4, Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. That's a promise of God. And Isaiah 64, verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. God is there wanting to work for you. He's wanting to carry that burden, and he commands you to throw it on him and not try to carry it yourself. God wants to be a burden bearer because it demonstrates his power, and it's, it puts him in a class by himself among the so-called gods of the universe. No one has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. He is the only God in the universe. He's the true God, and he is the only one who can carry the burdens of his people. And he wants to demonstrate his power in that way. So... Throw the garments of your anxiety on him. He wants to carry it. But how? How do we actually do this? Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. See, that sounds great, and, and a preacher can get up here and say that, and then sit down, and you, well, what are you going to do tomorrow when you start worrying? What are you actually going to do about it? Well, casting all your care upon him because... He cares for you. Often we trust God in the abstract. So we, we have the, the head knowledge that he is a trustworthy God. Yes, we know that in general he, he can save sinners. He will work it all out, generally speaking, for my good. But these verses are, they're talking about uh, specifics. They're, they're saying lay a specific anxiety on God. This is not just the nebulous... Um, Pray in the morning, God, I trust you, and then move on. This is you specifically laying these weights that are in your life onto God instead of carrying them. It's you emptying out your backpack and setting them there piece by piece. Believe that he is God. His purposes can't be thwarted. Uh, in Job 42, Job says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's the God we're talking about. When it says that he cares, it means he won't stand by and let things develop without his influence. It means he will act and he will work. <coughs> Not always the way we would. We looked a little bit at that last night. He's God and he sees a thousand connections we don't see. And so sometimes we don't understand why he works the way he does or why he allows what he allows. But it is... Bible truth, it is the word of God that no purpose of his can be thwarted. Take your anxieties, cast your cares on God. Turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We'll read verses 6 and 7. Philippians 4, starting at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. A lot in just these two verses. But we again are commanded to take everything to God. Anything that you have anxiety about, you're not supposed to have anxiety about, it says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Be specific and take him those weights that are weighing you down. And it says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. So even though we don't understand how he's working and, and why he's working exactly the way he is, it's beyond our understanding. He will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Anxieties are to be cast and not carried. Let God know. Give it to him. Talk to God about it. In, in labs... They have Petri dishes, or maybe it's Petri dishes. I'm not sure which way you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, grammatically, it looks like it should be Petri dishes. And they are specific vials, specific containers that are there to provide the, the, the uh, most opportune environment. To You want to grow bacteria? You grow it in this dish because it's the ideal place to do it. Speculating on your future is the petri dish of anxiety and fear. When you start speculating on your future, you have created the perfect environment for fear and anxiety to grow. That's at least one of the reasons why God has called us not to walk by prediction, but to walk by faith. God calls you to walk by faith, not by prediction. See, the way of the world is speculation of the future, near and far. So the way the world goes about uh, justifying what they do today is to speculate about what the future holds. Well, I'm going to do this today because in 35 years, I want to be retired and traveling the globe. And so <clears throat> in order to get there, I need to lay this, this, and this out. So what I'm doing today is this. That's how the world operates. They figure out what they want to do today based on speculating what the future has. When fortune-telling worms its way into the Christian life, weird theological distortions follow. And, and sorry, spe speculation is fortune-telling. Um, if, if you're trying to figure out how much money to put into Bitcoin tonight so you can figure out how to maximize uh, the cash you have, you're speculating, you're fortune-telling. You may not be reading palms or cards or whatever, but you're fortune-telling when you speculate for the future. And when fortune-telling worms its way into the Christian life, just weird things happen theologically in, in how we start to operate. And then we start to only obey God's revealed will, what, what he's already revealed as what his will is for us to do. We start to only obey it when, when we survey what we think the future holds and all the predictable outcomes and take a guess at what's most probable and we say, well, that does line up so I can do it. But, well, that doesn't really make sense. And, and so I'm, obviously God didn't mean what he said in black and white. Because that doesn't line up with what, where the future's obviously going. 
if God said it, you'd do it, whether your fortune-telling tells you it's going to make sense tomorrow or not. Sometimes we act like God's will is, is three doors. Um, so, so let's say there's, well, we got four doors over there, um, but they all go into the same room, so that doesn't really work for the illustration. Um, but you've got three doors leading into three different rooms, and you know, the husband, he really thinks, he predicts that door number one is going to open, and the wife predicts that door number three is going to open. And so what they do is they just wait to discover God's will by which door eventually opens. That's not how, that's not how following God's will works. God's will is found in daily obedience and walking by faith and trusting in him. It's not, following God's will is not a passive act. There are some times that, yes, you just end up stopping and waiting and seeing what God does next because you don't have a path forward. But if you have a path forward, when God has said, do this, you just keep doing that even if you don't know what door is going to open. And sometimes it feels like you're going to crash into a closed door, but that's God's problem, not yours. God's, God's will is found in daily obedience, walking by faith and trusting him in his revealed will. His, his will is not found in, in, pass, in being passive. And God's will is definitely not found by forecasting the most favorable outcomes. The writer Oliver O'Donovan uh, gives this explanation of why God intentionally hides from us his plans for our future. If we knew the story of the future hidden in God's foreknowledge, we should be beyond deliberation, beyond action, even beyond caring. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, Luke 17, 20. Even of the Son, through whom God acts in history, it is said that the day and the hour are not revealed to him. And that's in Matthew uh, 26. The price of agency is to know the future only indirectly, that we may venture on it as an open possibility. The future of prediction, dreary with anxiety or buoyant with hope, has to be held at bay so that we use this moment of time to do something, however modest, that is worthwhile and responsible, something to endure before the throne of judgment. There's a real beauty in not knowing the future because that frees you to do today what you know to do today. And you don't have to worry about, well, this will all be moot tomorrow. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But if, if God's will is for you to do it today, you do it today. And if you knew the future, you would just start to, you just leave a lot of things out because, well, maybe it's not worth it. God knows you don't need to know. Just do what he says. Now, to head off the objection now instead of waiting for it to be brought one by one after the message. What about planning? Um, some of us are planners. Doesn't God call for us to plan for the future? Yes, certainly we should um, strategize for the future. But we can effectively and wisely plan for the future without being compelled, without feeling compelled to predict the whole future. Um, don't ever forget, Scripture makes it plain, every confident expectation about tomorrow is vain before the eyes of a sovereign God. Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James 4.13-15, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So even in that James 4 passage, we see a little bit of planning. They're saying, well, if, if God makes it work, I am planning to do this or that. But we dare not slip, and it's so easy to slip into that, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go do this or that. Not, I'm thinking that's what I'm going to do, I'm planning that's what I'm going to do. There's a difference between planning and presuming. And it's, 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 it's a fine line, I know, that it, I know that we probably wander back and forth across it some. But we are obligated to walk forward in obedience no matter what the end may be. I need to walk toward, if, if God has made it plain that I walk, walk toward a certain door, um, and I'm talking black and white, he said, this is what you do, then, you, then I have to walk there, even if I don't see any way that door is going to open. And so, be careful that your planning doesn't turn into presuming in the sense of if you ever start to make a decision that is, well, I have to do that because that's what the future holds, you're on dangerous footing. Do you have to do that? because of what the future holds, you think the future holds that. Be very careful about, um, about wandering into, into the worldly mindset, the human mindset of just fortune-telling the future and then planning out what you think is the best path. It's about God. It's not about, well, frankly, it's not about you. It's not about me. Now, I have, I have had some fairly significant struggles and failure with anxiety, um, especially over, over the course of a couple years. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a big problem for me. It was, it was a, a failing in my life. You're going to get a little a micro lesson in computer programming this evening. Don't worry, it'll be at least slightly less boring than you think. Most computer programming, the guts of it really boil down to logical statements, logical tests. Um, you may have heard of if-then-else. So you have and if, so you have to define what the if is, what the uncertainty is. So we'll say, if status equals never more um, conscientious about the weirdness in your writing as when you're doing it in front of a group of people, but thankfully most of you probably can't even see this. So, if status equals raining, there's, there's our logical test that we're trying to figure out in our program. Is it raining or not? Well, what we need to do is determine the outcomes for whether, if it's raining we want one outcome, and if it's not raining we want the other. So that's where the then comes. Remember, we have if, then, else. 
this is this is the backbone of most logic in well logic beyond just computer programming but also in in any sort of scripting or computer programming so if the status is raining then get umbrella and leave but if it's not raining I don't want my umbrella so the else is else leave. So this is my little program that I run before I leave the house in the morning. If status equals raining, then get umbrella and leave, else just leave. Now, I have a problem here, which is get umbrella and leave are two different actions. And so there are times that I need to leave without getting an umbrella. There are times that I need to get umbrella without leaving. And so there's this other thing in, um, yeah, th th there's a lot of underlying things here. Like I need to walk to closet to get the umbrella. I need to walk to closet. I need to turn doorknob. I need to pull on door. I need to reach into, you know, I've got all these things that are, that are underneath umbrella. So in programming, you, you package things up into functions. And so um, what you would do is you would write something once because I need to go to the closet to get my shoes. Um, so the, the whole get to closet routine is its own little function that anytime I need to do that in my programming, I use something called go to. And that just tells your program, go to this other program and run that and then come back to here. Here is where my, he, here are two problems that I have struggled with a lot. One is I treat ifs as whens. So when, when I think in, in my life, I think, well, what if, oh my, it, it's scary to try to use real examples here. Um, Let's, well, we can go over the top. Um, what if my family dies in a car crash? Like that, that is something that, that can make, you know, I'm already getting the, the kind of coldness in my chest if, if I let myself start to think about that. The problem is that's an if. That's not a certainty. That is very much an if. But my tendency is to start turning ifs into whens. When I fall into anxiety, I start to let all the different um, ifs become whens in my life. That's problem number one. Don't do that. That's fortune telling. That's, that's presuming. Don't allow yourself to, to start thinking about all the negative things that could happen and start turning those into, well, when that happens, things are going to be bad. Don't turn the ifs into whens. And then the other thing is, when there is an if, you need a default if and then go to, if anything, go to God. Anytime you have an uncertainty in your life, anytime you run across an if, you need to have the automatic 
program, for lack of a better term, in your life of go to God. Not, let me think through all the ramifications of this. Let me figure out all the ways I can counter this. Your very first step, when you face an uncertainty in life, when there's an if in your life, the very first step needs to be go to God. That's what he's commanded you to do. Cast all your cares on him. See, for me, the ifs are the, the times when my chest gets cold and my heart rate goes up and, and I start to sweat even worse than when I'm preaching and, and just, well, everything goes because I have these uncertainties and, and the ifs are piling up. See, God would have, God would take those ifs. I'm going to keep waving this around. Put it away. God would, would, would take those ifs and have them be places of rest, not places of anxiety, not places of, of being disconcerted, but a place of being at rest and seeing God and the majesty of God and the bigness of God and knowing his provision and his power. See, God wants to take those scary things in your life and use them as the time, that, or the things that you let be scary, because most of them are never going to happen, and I realize I'm, I'm talking with the assumption that a lot of you are like me. Hopefully most of you aren't, but so much like me. But God would have those ifs to be pauses, to be rests. When you get a little picture, just a little bit bigger of a picture of how big he is and how amazing he is. But I need to be intentional. And you need to be intentional to retrain your default state in an uncertainty, you need to retrain your default state. When you come to an uncertainty, don't turn toward anxiety and assumption. Turn toward truth and trust. That needs to be a rewiring that you do in, in the way you think and the way you operate. As a human, you're going to turn to anxiety and assumptions when you come to an uncertainty and something scary and something big. But God would have us turn to truth. He is almighty. He has everything under control. He works for his people. And trust. Cast your care on him because he cares for you. I don't know most of you very well. Um, there's a chance that some of you out there have a similar problem, a similar temptation, there we go, to me. One of the reasons, and, and this, um, a, a dear brother helped me, a dear brother helped me see this and, and the sin of cynicism in my life. Um, I considered cynicism to be a valuable tool in my arsenal. And he pointed out that cynicism was a dart that Satan was throwing. See, I would often turn ifs, I would turn what ifs into whens on purpose. Because see, if I build up, If I build up a really low set of expectations, if I just assume Claire's going to be nasty and horrible to work with, 
then when I get down and we roll up our sleeves and we have a project together on something, and I have to pick on somebody, so you're elected, Brother Claire. Um, not elected, appointed, there we go. Um, if I just, I just say, you know, it's really gonna be rotten to work with Claire on this project. It's gonna be pitiful, he's going to steamroll his own way, but I don't actually think this, by the way, I just, anyway. Um, he's gonna steamroll his own way, he's just gonna, he's gonna make it go his way. If I go into our project with that mindset, then see, if he would actually do that, well, pff, that's what I was expecting anyway. But if he doesn't, well, then I'm pleasantly surprised. See, what I've done is I've let my cynicism be the tool I'm trying to use to manage my disappointments in life. I'm trying to manage my own disappointments by just, well, if I keep my, my expectations way down here, then I'll never really be disappointed because it's just what I expect of everybody. I expect everybody to be dirt trash. And so, yeah, everybody's dirt trash. Oh, well, that's what I expected anyway. And then those rare times, of course, I've built up this mindset now of being cynical about everything. Those rare times that someone is just a sparkling gem of a person, you each have that opportunity. Those rare times I meet that sparkling gem of a person, well, I mean, you just get a high that's better than drugs I've never tried. I mean, it's just, wow, this is amazing to relate to a person who is, who's just, wow because my expectations were way down here. That is sin. That is you trying to be the God of your own life and manage, manage your disappointments and your emotions by your own broken tools. That is not what God calls you to. God calls you to trust. And, and right now, even right now, I have to confess that my temptation, it, it really, it, it can bother me at a human level as I say that to realize, well, that also means I need to trust brother so-and-so. Because if I trust God, he's telling me just to trust him. And, and so that means also trust this person and that person. Trust is, is the whole package. And that scares me. Unless I remember what God has said, that he is caring he is capable there is no god like him that will work for his people do not allow the sin of cynicism to be a tool you try to use to be your own god to deal with your anxieties to deal with your expectations let god be your god And if, if you're still not convinced that cynicism is sin, and it, it took a while. Um, the first morning he said it to me, I, I still don't think I got through that day yet with quite agreeing with him that cynicism was sin. Um, he closed, uh, I think it may have been the next morning, but he, he either closed our meeting that day or he started the next morning with the reminder that sin is an attempt to make life work without God. That's a pretty basic, simple ruler that I can use when I face a question about what is sin and what isn't. Any attempt I make to make life work without God, that's just sin. Because God has commanded me 
to take him everything. And so it is direct disobedience to God to try to make life work without him. Turn back to Matthew 6 before we close. Matthew chapter 6. We read some of the verses toward the end of this chapter. I want to pick up just a couple of verses earlier in the chapter before what we read. Matthew 6, we'll read verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We considered God our Father last night, and we looked at the Luke account of, of this prayer. Here we have, Your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And in this manner you pray, because of that, you pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I, I just want to, to, to make us think about our Father in heaven for a moment. Consider this phrase. The word Father in the Sermon on the Mount has a very tender connotation. Um, for example, the verses we read earlier, later in this chapter, um, Matthew 6.32, we're told not to be anxious about food, about clothing. And then he says why? Because your heavenly Father knows you need them all. We have, we have a tenderness there in, in, in the Father. And the implicit point there is you don't need to fret about the most nitty-gritty things because your Papa in heaven is right there. He knows every stress. He knows every anxiety. He knows every emotional turmoil. He knows every financial trouble. He knows it all, and he's on your side. So don't be anxious. God is a king, and he's a daddy. Our Father in heaven. Those, that's a powerful phrase that it, it's just in our, our Christianese dictionary, and so we don't really think about the, the depth of that phrase often. God is a king, and he's a daddy. He's He's holy, and yet he, he has, is humbled the right word? He, he's lowered himself to, to, to reach out to us and to, to work with us. We, we have this, this picture, the, the tenderness of a father. On the other hand, we look at Matthew 5.34, and we're told, Don't take an oath by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Don't swear by heaven, you don't have any control there. And, and that's the concept I get when I hear the word in heaven. Um, so on one hand, we have father, tender, warm, caring, attentive, and intimate title. And then we also have in heaven, a power above our place and understanding. Watch out. Don't treat him lightly. His kingdom really matters. His name really matters. His will really matters. And he's a father. He gives you bread. He gives you forgiveness. He helps you fight the fight. The phrase father in heaven is not an accidental choice by Jesus. He didn't just pick that because it rolled off the tongue well. He picked it on purpose. There is meaning in everything Jesus said. God is majestic and merciful. He dwells in the high and holy place and also with him who's, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's uh, verses that Brother Claire read this evening from Isaiah 57. He dwells in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. 
He's a king and he's a daddy. He is above and he's ready to come close anywhere. Anytime you call on him. He has plans for the whole universe and he has a plan, a great, loving, personal plan for your life and every little piece of it. So don't be a Christian atheist and believe in him, but then live like he doesn't have it under control. Don't live in worry and claim that you know God and that God exists. Those two are not compatible. We'll close with Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand.